National Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. First I'd like to acknowledge the Gurringai peoples of the, um, the land and where we are meeting and pay my respects to Aboriginal people listening and to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, the new documentary feature Whiteley is a visual journey into the private life and creative legacy of Australia's most iconic artist, Brett Whiteley, told in his own words using personal letters, notebooks and photographs interwoven with reconstructions, animations, archival interviews and rare footage. I'm here with Wendy Whiteley to discuss the film and the impact of this story on the dialogue around the value of visual artists in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Wendy. Nice, nice of you to be here. Yes. This documentary is so important in showing that being an artist can be a legitimate full-time career, a real job, as they say. Um, what made Brett decide to pursue art full-time? Um, well, he always drew, as a kid he drew, and he got, he got positive attention for that. Um, so he was treated as a, as a good thing to do. His parents kind of encouraged him. His father made a kind of, put it together for him, a little notebook of some of these drawings. Later on in life I met people that used to give their kids great big canvases to paint on and things, when the whole idea of, of like children's art being um, something almost as good as adult art, and that whole theory about, you know, all kids can draw but then they get a kind of wound out of them and things. So we always got, he always got good attention, as did I, so he had, a, he had a kind of a curiosity that went with that, and then um, he was quite good at most things, Brett, for a while, because he, because he looked so odd. And then there's the famous story that he was sitting in, in, in church on Sunday chapel um, at the boarding school, which he loathed, in Bathurst, and he found the Vincent book on the floor, and it kind of hit, hit a nerve very basically knew nothing about him. I didn't know much at that age either about Vincent, but um, that was all kind of patched up after Lust for Life came out, the big film on Vincent at the time with the paintings blown up to such a huge scale. I think um, Vincent van Gogh ended so many people's consciousness through that, you mm. know, and, and uh, it's amazing because they're so packed with energy and things that it just stayed in people's mind both Brett and I had, um, you know, kind of honed our skills with our visual intelligence because I consider the visual arts to be just another form of language, really, yes. and communication. Um, and a lot of people don't get that, or they don't have. I'm not sure whether it's they don't educate themselves visually, or they don't have um, that kind of a brain. I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is. Mm. Brett had that kind of a brain and that kind of curiosity and that kind of ambition. I had all of those things except the ambition, you know, really. I didn't have that huge ambition to, to make it professionally and make it my career. So I married, you know, I married an artist instead and went with an artist and lived the life without having to, and I've been trying to make up for it since a bit, but, you know. I don't need, I mean, I think partly the thing of being, of being a professional artist is that you have to earn a living. Mm. 
Yes, and of course when we, I mean Brett's father was horrified at the idea, as was my mother at the idea, because the, the, the myth of, you know, you had to starve in a garret, mm. which is a bit of a hangover from Vincent, of course, um, <coughs> that you were just going to live a life of abject poverty as an mm. artist. Well, that had not really been true for a very long time. Mm. The balance here is such a small market mm. that it can only support enough people. And there's still that slight thing that in order to... Um, either get an international career or mm. be accredited with being great. You, see, you have to you have to go away first and then come back. Well, we went away mm. because Brett won the scholarship very young, which, you know, the Whiteley Scholarship tries to replace to some degree, but we didn't come back for 10 years. Yeah. Um, so we had a, an extraordinary education mm. in the visual arts at a time when Australia wasn't providing one at all. Mm. And nor the, the blockbuster shows or anything that come here now. So it felt very isolated in Australia. But I still think that it's the best education you can have is actually go there yep. and, and just spend a lot of time in museums and things and seeing how it's done. Mm. Technically, te technique you can learn at art school, but none of the other stuff. Yep. Yep. None of the other stuff. I can tell you how to pay your taxes or... <clears throat> how to have a career the minute you walk out of school. But I think that's all a bit of bullshit, really. Mm. I think you really, there, there has to be a period where, unless you're super talented and, and also quite charismatic, is that you're going to have a hard time um, mm. getting a good shows and um, establishing a, a buying public, yeah. you know, enough to make a living. But there are a lot of people in this country that actually live quite good lives out of mm. being visual artists. Yeah. I'm not talking about the rest of the arts, capital A, mm. being actors and musicians and things like that. I think there's always a bit of struggle, yeah. but it's, it's nothing like the great myth. No. Well, I mean, that, that brings me to what I was going to ask you next, which is the perception that being an artist is easy, but, um, and you did mention this a little bit, but professional artists are often swamped with their administrative demands of, um, that are required by anyone running their own business. Um, and in the documentary, we get a sense that you play such a pivotal role throughout Brett's career, not only as uh, inspiration for much of his work, but um, really in managing, I guess, the, the practice and the, the business of, of Brett Whiteley, which well, you are still... You know, I wasn't conscious of, of yeah. being an admin person. It really just, um, I mean, all the day-to-day -day stuff, yeah. yeah. Hey, Brett wasn't going to do that. No. And if I'd said, I'm not doing it either, I want to paint, mm. the, the relationship would have gone out the window in two seconds. Mm. I never thought about it. I just did whatever yeah. needed doing. Mm. Um, and we lived, until we bought this house, we more or less lived in one room, mm. wherever we were. The studio, so the painting and the living and everything was going on in one space. You know, people paint for the site, the house they're in, yeah. or the building, the space they're in. So. Brett's pictures didn't really start expanding to big sizes until we started getting big, he started getting big studio spaces to work in and make a hell of a mess while he was doing it. Yeah. Which was different to try and all live in one room. Mm. In London, I used to draw a line across the floor <laughs> and say, don't cross it, which of course got totally ignored. But yeah. it was an attempt to just have a space where you could sit without getting covered in paint and have it with someone that you just felt was um, your space, yeah. a room of one's own. 
mm. like Virginia Woolf said, we should all have, and I think everyone should have, yeah, mm. a space that's their own. But um, when, we, when we got this help, but I mean, apart from that, it was what, paying taxes? Well, you get a tax accountant and you take in a box of stuff and you give it to him and say, sort it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, now people have to deal with the media much more. Mm. And it, obviously it helps to um, be articulate and to have a bit of charisma. Brett's a character, you know. Um, and he didn't like some of the judgments put on him, but he was all—he was born that kind of character, mm. an outsider kind of character. And that can get you into deep water, or always identifying with the outsider. I did also, mm. because of my background and my father more than anything else. I was rebellious, and you know, I didn't mind being. In fact, I hated being ignored much more than I liked being noticed. Now, all that can or can't help you. Um, it can get you into deep water in other ways, but it also can be quite useful. When we came back here, we came back here with a reputation which we didn't deserve at the time. Do you think so? You know, basically. Why no, would you say because that? Well, no, we, we'd lived in New York for a couple of years. Brett had major success mm. in, in um, London and Europe and, and um, New York. A couple of big shows. And when he, when he kind of pissed off from New York because he got upset about the American dream not being exhibited by Norbert Gerson, in, who was his gallery in New York, um, and went to Fiji. When he got busted in Fiji, we came back with the media all over us, mm. you know, but because they thought we were drug addicts, not because they thought we, Brett was a great artist, mm. but they didn't know anything about it. Yeah. But also, we had, it had, we had the, the stamp of good housekeeping. Yeah. For the Australian media, you know, we were celebrities rather, and it didn't matter whether you, wouldn't have mattered what you were doing, but that, somebody who'd had success abroad, didn't matter where it was, but abroad, as long as it wasn't, had didn't have to wait for here. Yeah. Um, and the time we got back, the 60s were just, was 1970, and the 60s were just starting. Yeah. yeah. But we'd already been through the whole thing of that, you know, mm. abroad. So really all we wanted to do was find we didn't intend to stay, actually, because of that thing of it feeling. But it's it it did the one thing about the change over that ten years had been that Australia didn't feel nearly as isolated as it had done before, yeah. <coughs> and also when we could afford to to get the hell out when we needed to, yeah. and certainly young artists can do that now. Yeah. You know, it's cheaper to travel. It's not as much fun, and it's much more expensive when you get to the other end. Mm and much more dangerous. I mean, a lot of things have changed. I don't want to go banging on about the beauty of the 60s because it, it had its dark side as well. But it, it was easier yeah. in those days. Yeah. But then there were a lot less people claiming to be artists. Mm. Or calling themselves artists, yeah. whatever that means. Sometimes I think you've got to think of another word. <laughs> I'm interested in uh, what you just said about um, you're not you're thinking that you didn't deserve the reputation and it was really, you know, more or less based on the celebrity status of being busted for drugs. Um, I mean, part of Nava's main agenda is to raise the profile and acknowledgement of the value of artists in Australia and yeah. the infrastructure that supports them. Mm -hmm. Wendy, how do you see this documentary as an avenue to open up a discussion on the value of artists in Australia? Do you think we should be valuing artists here of course yeah I mean <coughs> uh, you know for me I mean I can only answer for myself but for a lot of people and for a lot of my friends a lot of people I know 
life without the art, with a capital A, with an S on the end, in whatever form it takes. And most people are interested maybe in two of the forms and they may not be so interested in the other two or the other three, whatever exists outside that, but specifically involved in, say, let's just concentrate on the visual arts for the moment. Um, yes, I think it's important because it's just unthinkable yeah. to me. Now, I know there's a lot of people who, who think it's not that important, but I don't think any culture survives without a balance between the two things. You know. I'm not in the least bit interested in sport. But uh, it's not to say Brett wasn't, but I mean, you know, watching it. Um, but I'm not in the least bit, never have been. Don't like team sports, don't like any of that thing. But it's not that I'm not f interested in physical, but uh, it's just for me it's not, I mean, I'm interested in So, okay, that's something that a lot of attention is given to in this mm -hmm. country. And in any country you go to, so it's not just Australia anymore that's obsessed with soccer and football and things like that. I used to think, we used to think in the old days it was just Australia, but it's not. Yeah. Because their huge audiences go to these things. Now, and pop music's another thing. Mm. Now, Brett, Brett envied the power of being a pop musician, mm. one who was, you know, well known. Because it's an incredible power sensation to be able to go into a huge, you know, auditorium somewhere and have thousands of people having an amazing time. Mm. And the benefits from it are also great. On the other hand, our friends involved in the pop music were very envious of Brett being able to go into a studio by himself without the band and the managers and the travelling and the collapse of the families because, you know, they were never there or... You know, or the temptations of all the girls or boys outside the room at night were too, you know, I mean, every, every life is complicated by that, but the, it's fascinating. I mean, that kind of power is fascinating, and I think any, probably any creative artist is interested in power in a way. Mm. Certainly the power to communicate in some way that's meaningful. Yeah. You don't, I don't think anybody does any of that in a vacuum at all. Mm. It's not like being, a, you know, a Buddhist monk in a cave. It need, it's, a, it's a form of communication and you need the audience to communicate with. So the importance of art is providing that place to go, um, any of the arts is providing that place to go for the people. And even if it is, I don't think it's elitist anymore. Yeah. More and more people are going to the museums and more and more people consider that to be part of their lives. And that's changed vastly from when, you know, there used to be nobody in the museums. Now there's almost too many people in the museum, mm. you know. And a grumpy old thing like me will go, oh my God, I wish they'd all go and watch football, you know. <laughs> when you're trying to look at a painting through 15 people holding up iPhones, you just think it's become too popular and too important to a lot of people. The problem is you have no idea what's going on in their heads. You don't know whether this crowd is just ticking off a travel log thing that they think they have to do or whether they're serious looking at, seriously looking at the work, seriously enough to actually contemplate it. I think it's getting harder. And I certainly don't think that, that people looking at stuff on their iPhones is anything like looking at a painting in the museum where it's, where it's hung or in any given space where they're hung. It's a completely different experience. And I'm 76 now, Brett would have been 78, um, and we would have, it, the world has changed enormously. 
but there were plenty of years when painting was supposed to be dead, and that has turned out to be a complete reversal of that's happened. That's mm. true. And the entire of Europe and America are obsessed with paintings from Brett's generation, basically, and before. Which yes. is so exciting to hear you say that because um, often there's, I mean, particularly with the art schools, a lot of dialogue about whether whether there is any commitment to the old old disciplines or if we're all in new media, which I think is a, a bit of a debate. Well, I think that's why one of, one of the main reasons it's very important for us to keep the National Art School going mm, yeah. with a studio-based um, curriculum and whether they're free of all that other stuff you were talking about earlier, which is teaching artists how to try and get a show, you know, the minute they walk out of the out of the art school, mm. or whether they can, you know, somehow, I don't know, some, I don't know, even be an artist. I mean, a lot of people go to art school, it's a good place to grow up, but they're not all going to be artists, but they might make terrific teachers mm. or, or admin people, you know, in one way or another. But there has to be somewhere to support them afterwards. Mm, that's right. It's a very, still a very individualistic um, thing to, to, to make it in any of the arts fields as, a, as an individual doing your thing. Mm. Because the audience demands that you, have a, you, you come up with something that's unmistakably yours. Mm. Good, bad or indifferent. What do you think... And just touching on some of the things you've just mentioned, what do you think are the key ingredients for a long-term successful career and international recognition as a visual artist? Is it, is it possible in, in today's...? Well, we'll start with the first question. Mm. Uh, the ingredients are obviously talent, ambition, stubbornness, um, the ability to ride the rough days and... and um, the ability to make a fool of yourself sometimes and, you know, survive it. Um, curiosity. I mean, a, a huge bag of things come together in one lump and it's very difficult to define which is the starting point. Mm. Probably somebody telling you you're good at what you do is a good starting point. That is, is encouraging. Um, you need an enormous amount of tenacity and you need to work bloody hard. You know, that, that gets you somewhere. The international bit... There are two ways, obviously now. Either you've got a gallery that takes you to the art fairs mm. all over the place, so you start being spread around a bit and other people get to see you. Um, you get, um, you're lucky enough to be in an exhibition when there's some tourists coming around and they see it and they take you out of it, or you go and live somewhere else for a while. Mm. That's what I would have said a few years ago, that it was essential. If you want an international career, you, you'll have to go and live in New York or London or somewhere else because the punters want to meet the artists. They want to know them, mm. you know, and they want you to go to dinner. And that can sometimes be nice and sometimes be a price you have to pay mm. when you're young. Do you think there's anything that Australia as a country can change um, to create that sort of platform or um, potential for artists to grow to that sort of status, like suppose of Anish Kapoor or Damien Hirst? I don't think Australia can do much about it, except Australia as a culture, mm. um, which involves, you know, kind of bureaucrats, really. Their whole idea would be to not send a show to the Royal Academy like they did a couple of years ago, but to actually send a good show mm. instead of one that just got so rubbish it was unbelievable. 
I believe the um, the, impre- the Australian Impressionist show's done quite well recently, and it was smaller and 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 it got much more positive attention. But the uh, the the ones that you know once again a good deal of luck that Brett was involved in. Um, the Tate did one, and then Whitechapel did one. Well, the Whitechapel one was the one that really made people who sit up and take notice. And then, of course, Brett, Brett got involved in the whole British thing then, mm. with Hockney and all the other people that came up. You know, it was one of those moments in London where there was a, an incredible uprising of, of energy into the visual arts, which was unusual for London, because, you know, it's always been seen as theatre and Shakespeare and all that stuff. Not so, it's not such a, a, a huge reputation. I mean, Paris had that. The French and the Italians had the kind of visual arts thing tied up mm-hmm. in the sense of that's where the genius, you know, the really creative people were coming from in the visual arts. But London suddenly had that huge surge. And, you know, all of the, the people at that time was the time we were there and Brett was involved. So, and mostly through Brian Robertson and the White Chapel. For, to ensure a conducive environment for the visual arts in Australia. NAVA has been active in the call for a national arts policy. You mentioned at the NAVA screening of the Whiteley documentary in Sydney that you've been speaking to arts ministers about arts policy and supporting artists. What did you say to them? Well, w- one meeting was completely by chance mm. um, in Cairns, but before that, again by chance, I mean, I didn't know it was going to happen, opening the film. I think it was the first, I think it was the first occasion that Don Harwin uh, went to, mm. you know, officially. He'd just been named Arts Minister and he turned up there, so I met him and we had a nice chat and he met a lot of people and it kind of was, was his entrance into the art, visual arts. And luckily, he's, Don Harwin especially, is one of the few Arts Ministers that's actually interested specifically in the visual arts rather than theatre or literature or opera or whatever. You know, the, the visual arts is the thing that he loves. And so having done that, he then went to the art gallery, started talking to the people there, and now they've got the money. You know, I'm sure that helped, mm. having an arts minister that, that thought it was a really good idea, you know, to build the extension. There's a lot of people who don't think it's a good idea. Mm. But on the whole, I think it will work extremely well. I've been very supportive of the idea. And, and you know, Michael Brown's been given such a hard time about it, and I think that's very unfair. Mm. Very unfair. Because a lot of the things that happened that people thought was appalling at the art gallery was set in train well before Michael Brown arrived. Mm. And that was set in train by all the cuts from the government to the arts. I don't know, it's difficult, you know. I, I, once, once anything gets anything, any institution gets involved and dependent on the government, taxpayers' money, they're also giving up quite a lot of um, the ability to control what they do. Mm. So it's a it's a it's a difficult bit of high wire to walk because you have to you have to do two things. I mean, Edmund Edmund Capon was very very keen that the museums in Australia always stayed free. 
open. But now that's a very English thing. Mm. Though I believe they've started changing that in England too. And most of the museums in the world are finding that they can't keep going on funding. And Australia actually gets probably more. For, I keep saying, why don't we? Why the hell don't we have another arts lottery? Mm. You oh, know, we've been talking about that too. Yeah. Why don't we have an arts lottery? Look what look what Mum and achieved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm. two probably too big now. The extension on the Tate, it's huge. Mm. And the Tate is, you know, it's Tate in Cornwall. They said the Tate has done an amazing job. The, the the opera got picked up, everything. Everybody started to complain because the hospitals were falling down and all the money was going into the arts. But at the time when they were selling those tickets for the arts, the same, exactly the same as with the opera house, we would never have had the opera house had we relied on the government to build it. Mm. You know, because everybody would have said cost too much of them. But when they're buying lottery tickets, they don't give a stuff about things like that. Because there's a chance, you know, somebody's gonna win some money back. Fair enough. I mean it doesn't matter. But it's it seems to me to be a very good way of raising money. There's certainly an air now in this country of there's a bit more philanthropy going on than there used to be. Yeah. And America wouldn't have what they have without that being right from the beginning. The thing that annoys me about Australia and, and, the, and the governments is that the arts are always the first thing to be cut back the minute they get in trouble. And you know, there's always the feeling that it will come at the end. So I'm quite surprised at what's happened in the last couple of weeks mm. with the, you know, the money being handed out. And we get people like Brandis you know, taking money away from, from the Australia Council. Not that I'm all that involved in the Australia Council, but I mean, you know, and a lot of people think they don't make the right decisions, but you're not gonna make, you're never gonna make everybody happy no. with whatever you do. We were started to talk before about um, what you said to the politicians when you're promoting the film and uh, you mentioned Don, but I'm, I remember you said something about chatting to Mitch Byfield. Oh yeah, well that was another, I said that they were both semi-accidental, but the yeah. other one was really accidental, was that he happened to be up in Cairns at the same time that show was opening um, for something else, because it's also his, his arts and communications. And there was something to do with communications, I think it was to do with that medical app they were trying to get out, you know, that people could connect into the medical app. And he was up there with um, an old mate of his, a real Queensland politician. And I thought, oh, this is going to, he's, this is going to be, and you know, immediately Jolty Peterson came to mind and you know, Queensland and white tuber gates and all of those things. And it turned out to be absolutely nothing like it. He had a badge on, said, what's that? And it, and it was, um, he was supporting, um, he was supporting equal rights marriage and he was supporting um, AIDS in some way. You know, so this very right-wing politician had the absolute other side and, and Fifield had said, he told Mitch Fifield that the Whiteley thing was opening and so he'd phoned up the gallery to Andrea Churcher up there and said, um, you know, can I come and can I open it? Oh, they were thrilled, you know. Mm. So they, they, um, he came in and I had a terrific chat with him and he said, you know, he'd really he'd been given the arts but um, he never really, he didn't think he'd ever really met an artist. So I said, oh, we'll give it, you know, we make jokes about them and things. But he was very affable and very open to the idea of supporting the arts too. So it's not until you actually 
get the opportunity to talk to these people in a non and in a non abrasive way. Mm. But you don't. This is the difficulty when you when you're dependent on 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 um, government money or institutional money, taxpayers' money. It's a fine line to walk, and you have to make individual decisions about whether you're going to say having nothing to do with that. And very few, probably, visual artists in this country can afford to do that. Yeah. Cut, cut their nose off to spite their face. And you, you know, we used to get you know, quite deeply involved in politics, but demonstrations and things. Brett did in New York, very much so. I'd go to the demonstrations, he'd paint big posters and things for Norman Mailer and things like that. It never made the size of a difference, which was a huge mm. disappointment to him. Kind of the death of a romantic idea, really. Mm. There's nothing wrong with having it. No. You've got to survive a disappointment, but it doesn't make that much difference. It can only make a difference if somebody sees it, an individual sees it, and it makes a difference to them, and then there's a whole lot of individuals that see it that makes a difference to them. So once again, it becomes a kind of group idea. Yeah, and you think you still think it's tough to be an artist in Australia, do you? Yeah, I do. I don't. Um, I mean, a I lot mean, of people I've mentioned as having a very good life have also yeah. had to teach, and Brett's an exception that he yeah. never had to teach. Yeah. Sid Nolan never taught. Mm. Arthur Boyd never taught. So that generation didn't because they went, they went to England basically. Yeah. They got the hell out of here. Yeah. The people who stayed here mostly had to teach, or they lived pretty rough bohemian lives. Yeah. Probably great lives, but they weren't. They didn't own anything much. No. Maybe a run-down house and an old mm. bomb of a car. But you know, and I've got friends who still live like that, but they're happy. Yeah. And frankly, we didn't have anything for years and years and years. We didn't no. own a bloody thing. No. We had enough money to get on with it. That's all. Yeah. And travel. Yeah. And go somewhere else and, and find travel. an empty farmhouse and yeah. move in it and yeah. sweep out the bad shit and move in. Yeah. Pump the water and cook over. I mean, I feel sorry that that doesn't exist a bit more. Yeah, it is. The sense of space is terribly important. Mm. Actually, Colin McGuinness said that to us in London when mm. we first met him. The most important thing is space for each person and the money to buy it, he said. <laughs> he added, yeah. money to buy the space to live mm. in. It's true. Space is a real problem. It's that room of one's own thing again. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, Virginia Woolf had. The money is the money, the pinnacle, getting on the rich list, you know, because I don't think. I mean, sure, there's always going to be people who think that way, but uh, no, the the majority of artists that I speak to and that contact us are not looking for the money. No one, no one is an artist for the money. People are artists because they want to be, but people do need, do struggle eating and, um, you know, getting through, getting through the day and finding it hard to. Yeah, can, I guess compete on a, um, for visibility in a, in a place where there are so many people, more people wanting to wanting that as a career. I mean, particularly the the cuts to the government um, arts budget has had a huge impact on artists' um, morale. It's, yeah, it's a huge blow to people wondering if they're wasting their time, if they should bother being an artist when they are really passionate about what they're doing. I think we're doing all right in Australia. I think, in fact, I think we've done remarkably well. We're hungry to create a culture that's 
Australian. Mm. It's going to change. Yeah. You know, over time, we're getting more influences here now, mm. and more things are coming in much more quickly. But there's still, you know, mm. there's a there's a reversal to going out to the outback and things now with the younger painters I notice. Mm. So that Ben and Luke Scaberis and all that lot, they're all going off on painting trips out there. But they're also, you know, pissing off to Europe mm. three times a year as well. So it's not that it's the same kind of naive structure we had yeah. before we went. We've seen nothing. Except what was in the art gallery, mm. and some of those artists, like Lloyd Rees, are so sadly neglected. Like you mentioned not before us. that we um, that we're hungry for culture. Do you think that? Well, you see, culture is another word. What the fuck does yeah. that mean? Do you yeah. mean pop culture? Do you mean the culture that in, that includes sport and everything else with it? Yes, of course you do. Mm. When you're saying when you're saying culture, you're not really talking high culture, which is what we used to think of being being cultured mm. meant that you you know you had a good education, you read Proust from mm. car to car, you knew who Shakespeare was, you you know you knew who the pa few painters were, if that, or you knew a lot about them. Yeah. Is you that know, what you, you meant when you said culture, or were you referring? Yeah, to no, identity? we keep talking about generating yeah. a, a culture that's uniquely Australian. Yeah. And, you know, film has done a bit, but it, it has a tendency to hang around, for me, it has a tendency to hang around either the dark side, mm. which is, you know, the murders and things that go on in this country, or it hangs around um, um, the dopey lot, you know, for me. I mean, yes, they're unique and they're funny, and, there's a, and there is an Australian sense of humour, which I've always loved. Mm. You mostly get it in the outback, that kind of laid-back, you know, mm. kind of situation that's not about that's not about being clever so much well in a way it is I don't know but we we've always craved we wanted people to come here and look at our stuff we wanted acknowledgement for our playwrights for our things and we're beginning to earn it um, I think I think the acting field has helped a hell of a lot with people even know where the fuck Australia is you know a lot of Americans wouldn't know still yeah. where it is but Americans are, you know, particularly in returning in some parts of it. They really don't know what's going on in the rest of the world at all. And they don't particularly want to. Mm. You know, they, they really don't. And it's just this, this necessity to feel that you have to be part of a, of a broad world um, thing now. And it's because everything's coming at us. That, you know, I mean, we are doing it. I mean, it is happening. In spite of bureaucracies thinking it's good to have a policy about it or not, yeah. you know it'll generate itself. I'm very, you know, I'm pretty wary of getting too involved with mm. government. I mean, for example, I knew for a fact that if I phoned up the railways or written a letter to the railways and said, "Would you mind if I turned that dreadful rubbish dump in front of my house?" which you've been there for a hundred years and you've completely ignored it and it's now full of rubbish and ghastly and dangerous and ugly. Would you mind if I turned that into a garden at my own expense, not going to push you around? They would have said no, mm. absolutely no. So if I got the no and then tried to do it, I would have been arrested. Mm. So not asking them was the best policy. Yeah. Just not getting involved. Also knowing that I was at the risk of being thrown off all the time. And, and actually, in the end, it worked because they never threw me off. Because, mostly because it wasn't costing them anything. You know, 
if I'd asked them for help or asked them to do something for me, you know, there would have been a no again. Mm. Because you're dealing with bureaucrats. And you're dealing with people that, or you're always dealing, you're always dealing with levels all the time of people who can't actually make a decision. So you're saying, I'd like to talk to your boss. No, no, you can't talk to the boss because he's too busy to talk to you. But we can do this, this and this, and you can't move past that because we can't make the decision. That bus-passing mentality mm. that, that gets into bureaucratic institutions, it's just, it's the death. It's the death of any kind of um, creativity, really. very subtle and it's very subtle. slow. It tells the stories. And, and it comes from the kind it comes overall from yeah. the kind of societies that set up the arts at a different level than, mm. than the idea of it changing, mm. stopping wars and changing things like yeah. that because you know I mean war and, and that kind of violence that they run around and destroying it. Mm. You know, they're not building it, they're destroying it or they're keeping it and selling it for money, you yeah. know, just for ransom, doing whatever. I think he said before um, that art is it's a visual language and I, mm. I suppose that's that's what it's doing for and with those situations is that art probably is the only thing that has the capacity to articulate what's going on there in a way. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of people believe that that's the job of of art, so I don't think it is all the time, and I think people get really overburdened with most of the visual arts being kind of gloomy and mm. about violence or pornography, or you know, it's got a political point and it's mm. grinding it over. Depends how well it's done, of course, but actually, I, I don't think it has nearly as much much impact on anybody unless it's particularly profound mm. works of art. I mean. The, the black goyas were about a very hard time in Spain, you know, with the war and the thing going on in Spain, and he's, he's illustrated that in a way that, um, that's very meaningful and that affects people in the way they think about the horror of what mm. went on. Mm. But it took somebody as great an artist as Goya to do that. It's not, it's not done by any old person just grinding out some kind of political message or putting graffiti on a wall or something. No, it's, that's something else, you know, that's, a, that's another form of... So it may be all attempts to communicate, but it is another form. It's not what should be under the heading of the arts, that government should be supporting, mm. you know, or having arts policies about, you know. I mean, in a, in a way, everything people don't do. You know, a garden dunno is, is an art form. Anything that involves eye touch, you know, communication with the, with the thing is an art form. But how much of that needs to be supported by government and how much of it will survive um, if it's not, I mean, it's, it's going to be up to the people who are actually using it. You know? Or making it. Yeah, or going there. And if the public stopped going to museums, you know, and galleries and things like that, and Edmund really changed the art guard New South Wales around, it's been the whole thing's been stuck in the mud a bit for a while, mm -hmm. but it's um, hopefully it'll regenerate and there'll be more works that we haven't be shown. But I don't think it's the duty of, the, of, of any of the Australian museums to be trying to buy 
um, absolutely phenomenally expensive pictures and bring them here for people to see. It'd be much better to spend money on, well, I'll give an example, the, the, the rather mediocre Suzanne that they bought for Edmund's departing gift, which cost 14 million. In my view, it would have been much better to spend 40 million putting people on planes to go to France and see some Suzannes. Mm -hmm. That's what they particularly want to concentrate on. And bring them straight back. Just let them have three days looking at Suzanne. Amazing. You know, it yeah. would have been much more meaningful than that little picture, which nobody looks at anymore much. Mm -hmm. Or the Vincent Potato Eaters or something. What's the point of New South Wales having, or Australia, having one Vincent? Ollie bought some good things actually with her money. The, the um, Bonart portraits. It happens to be a beautiful little portrait in its own right. But not people are not going to travel to Australia to see that or to see international art. They're going to they come to Australia, they want to see great Australian art. So we, we really need to take that more seriously, you know. Yep. And they'll go, to, they'll go to London to see, um, you know, Bacon's and they'll go, you know. They'll go to the big international museums to see the great co collections from the past. Yeah. I think that's a really important message and a good one to finish on. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope, Thank you know, you. the new building yeah. and things. I keep banging on about it, you know, that it's, that's what we should be concentrating on. Head to our website, visualarts.net.au, for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations. Thank you.